Have you ever voted in an election? If so, have you stopped for a minute to think about the power that you have? Your choice could help change life in your community. It could influence foreign policy. Votes change the course of history. 21-year-old Georgia had that power. It was very underwhelming, actually. Like, it was just in, like, a tiny church. And, yeah, I had no idea what to expect. So I was, like, super nervous going in. And then it was literally just, like, ticking a box. (laughs) Okay, so exercising your democratic right is important. But no one said that it was going to be exciting. But if you were voting just over 150 years ago, it really could be a life and death situation. 1868 is a relatively quiet election. There's only eight people killed on polling day. This is Dave Evans, and he knows a lot about elections in the 19th century. But 30 elections at least descend into full-scale riot. They read the Riot Act and bring in military forces. The way we do elections has changed quite a bit since 1868. And today, I'm bringing you the story of how we worked hard to make voting nice and chilled. And it's all about secrets. I'm Kayleigh Golding, and this is How We Got Here. The podcast from UK Parliament about the people who turn big ideas into the laws that shape our society. In today's episode, we'll be hearing about the violent history of elections, the experience of a first-time voter, and the people who read the petitions sent to UK Parliament by people like you and me, as we find out how we got the secret ballot. So do you know that saying, never discuss politics and religion in polite company? Well, for a long time, that was impossible because until 1872, if you were allowed to vote in elections, it was a very public event and that had the potential to cause a lot of trouble. Here in the 21st century, we perhaps take it for granted that we have the right to vote in private without anyone looking over our shoulder and seeing who our vote is going to, but that is quite a recent development. Our modern process for voting in general elections goes like this. People over the age of 18 who are registered to vote can vote and their vote is secret You can go to your local polling station where you step into a private booth, mark your ballot paper and then place it into a sealed box. And that sealed box is at the heart of today's story, which begins in Pontefract, a town in West Yorkshire, famous for its licorice Pontefract cakes and a very important box. Let's go back to Dave Evans. Hello, I'm Dave Evans and I'm the curator at Pontefract Museum. And one of the most interesting objects that we have in the collection is a ballot box from the first parliamentary secret ballot election that was held in Britain. So the first time that people voted in secret for their MP happened to be in Pontefract in 1872. Pontefract was a testing ground for a new way of voting that seemed radical at the time, but many aspects of that new system are still in use today. Over 150 years later... And here's how it went. The first thing they do is they open the boxes and hold them upside down, as they still do today, to demonstrate that there's nothing in the box already. And then they closed the boxes and sealed them, which meant they melted a 
wax across the join between the top and the bottom and then they stamped into the seal a mark to show you know if it had been opened the wax would have broken and the seal would be damaged so they sealed it up and then they vote through the day and at four o'clock they close the polling stations and the mayor goes round and collects them and at five o'clock he's back in Pontefract Town Hall and he opens the boxes and as the returning officer the law says he personally has to count all the votes so he then spends the next three hours counting until he uh, is able to declare the result shortly after 8pm. Now, this new system was radical and the nation's press held their breath waiting for something to happen. But it didn't quite turn out like that. The press was shocked at how boring the day was. They described this as a funeral procession. This may all sound really normal for us, but at the time, many people were rather disappointed that the election wasn't a traditional one. But what did elections before the secret ballot actually look like? To find out more, we need another expert. I'm Philip Salmon, and I'm the editor of a project at the History of Parliament, uh, researching the 19th century House of Commons. Just who we need. I asked Philip to explain how voting worked before the historic day in Pontefract in 1872. In parliamentary elections, it was almost always oral voting. So the voter simply is asked by a polling clerk sitting at a desk, surrounded by loads of observers, how he wants to vote. And then this is written down in a poll book. And sometimes these poll books were printed later on. So if you want to find out how one of your ancestors voted, the chances are they might be in a Victorian poll book somewhere. I mean, one of the problems facing the people who wanted secret voting was that public voting was actually extremely popular and considered by many people to be the most open and transparent way of doing politics. That's actually a really important point. The idea was that you should be proud of who you voted for and stand by your ideals in public. But like a lot of things, the reality was less noble than the sentiment. Because if everyone knows how you vote, chances are that someone will want to persuade you to vote differently. And that persuasion wasn't a leaflet or some canvassing. It could get really violent. Here's Dave Evans again. One of the candidates in the Carlisle election in 1852 is on record as hiring 495 bludgeon men, paying them five shillings each. You know, there's only 1,100 voters in Carlisle. There are 500 out-of-town bludgeon men coming in to encourage them to vote. And this is an organised system. You'd buy in agents who would ship in bludgeon men from across the country by train at a fixed rate to threaten people. And when the violence does break out, they can be quite horrific consequences, you know, because the bludgeon men start beating up the electors. And the only response of the authorities generally is to call in the army, which doesn't doesn't go well at all. So in Sheffield in 1832, they bring in the dragoons who shot five people dead, including two 14-year-old boys. And in Newport... In South Wales in 1868, they bring in the army who charged down the street and bayoneted two people to death on their way through. And they were just innocent bystanders. 
Okay, that is wild to imagine nowadays. Just try to picture your town going into a full lockdown every time an election's happening. There are even reports of voters being kidnapped and threatened or held until the election was over to make sure that they didn't go and vote for the wrong guy. But intimidation and violence weren't the only tactics to influence voting. Here's Philip Salmon again. I mean, it certainly wasn't unusual for tenants and farmers to have their leases cancelled if they voted against the wishes of their landlords. In our project at the History of Parliament, we've got all sorts of examples of voters being evicted for defying the wishes of a local squire. And um, shopkeepers could also lose custom and some people could even lose their jobs. I mean, that's the downside, if you like, of public voting. That doesn't sound great if your livelihood and your home depended on who you voted for. It's not a stretch to assume that you'd vote in whatever way would help keep your job and the roof over your head. And they really wanted to call it free choice. Corruption and bribery were everywhere. They were accepted as part of the electoral process. In fact, people even expected it. A lot of people relied on being paid money for their votes, which they sort of regarded as a form of property, especially the lower class of freemen voters who continued to dominate some constituencies. And I think secret voting, it was feared, would remove this important source of income from bribery and stop MPs spending so much money, vast sums, in fact, at election time. I mean, not just on bribes, but on all the free food and drink and entertainments, the treating, the bands of music and all the theatre and festivities that often took place in, in elections. Free food, drink, a town fair, all paid for by the candidates. Elections were often a money spinner for towns and would take on almost a carnivalesque spirit. Okay, so we've determined that violence and bribery were always part of the electoral process. But people also loved the party atmosphere that came along with election day. In fact, they even economically relied on it. So what changed? Why were people starting to think that a new system might be necessary? There was one group in particular who had a great interest in ensuring that voting was held in secret. The Chartists. Chartism was a movement of mainly working class people who wanted to expand the right to vote. The Chartists consolidated these demands in their six points, which included the right to vote for all men. This was also called suffrage, and they also wanted secret voting as well. One of their main tools to campaign for this was mass petitions. Thanks to the Chartist newspaper, The Northern Star, and active campaigning and signature collecting efforts, the Chartists gathered a lot of support for their cause. Although their six points focused on the right for all men to vote, women also signed their petitions as well. And their support was crucial to gaining as many signatures as possible. And they got a lot of support. In July 1839, they presented the petition outlining their main demands to the House of Commons with 1.25 million signatures. The total population of England and Wales at the time was only about 15 million, so that's pretty major. And then they submitted another one in 1842, this time with a whopping 3 million signatures. That one had to be carried into Parliament in a gigantic crate that was so big it couldn't fit through the door of the House of Commons. That's crazy. We really hope that you are enjoying this podcast and would love to know more about what you really think. 
If you could spare a minute, click the link in the show notes to do a quick survey about you and what you would like to hear more of. It will really help us out so we can make sure we are making better podcasts for you. Change didn't come immediately, but the Chartist petitioning and the public engagement did have an effect. The pressure to clean up the voting system was building. And then came the Second Reform Act in 1867. The thing, though, that I think finally pushes the UK government into action and into implementing secret voting is, well, first, the huge extension of the franchise by the 1867 Reform Act, which was passed by the Tories, by Disraeli. This increased the number of voters by 82%. It's the biggest increase of any of the Reform Acts of the 19th century. And the second thing is the huge amount of electoral corruption and intimidation, the pressurising of voters in the election that followed that, in the 1868 general election, the one that brings Gladstone and the Liberals to power. And it becomes clear to many people, because of the amount of intimidation unearthed in the 1868 election inquiries, that something needs to be done. And it built the momentum for more change. One of the other consequences of secret voting being introduced and the end of public voting and the idea that, you know, a voter could represent the unrepresented is it adds a new impetus. It galvanises the movement for women to get the vote. And it's from the 1870s onwards that we begin to see that movement, that really extraordinary movement for women to be enfranchised, really take off in a way that it hadn't before. And I think that there's a connection there. MPs thought it might be time to give this secret voting thing a real try. So let's go back then to Pontefract on August the 15th, 1872. The town was packed with press that was eager to see what would happen with this new method of voting. And their takeaway was, it was a dreadful bore. No violence, no free beer. The whole thing took ages as well because there were so many illiterate people who couldn't read the names on the ballot. So that meant that every time someone who couldn't read wanted to vote, the entire polling place needed to be cleared so the person could announce who they wanted to vote for without anyone else overhearing. Thankfully, these days, the process is much smoother. But you do need to register to vote. It really doesn't take long and you can do it all online. The press couldn't help but comment on how shockingly uneventful the whole voting process had been. But that day fundamentally changed the course of UK politics. Yeah, well, we take secret voting and all the democratic sort of safeguards that we have today for, for granted. You know, corruption, bribery, being forced, being actually forced to vote a certain way. I mean, these are things, you know, almost unheard of. And and that's a massive gain for any democratic system. That's really the thing, isn't it? The more people realise that they could have a say in shaping policy and in making their voices heard, the more things began to change. And a huge part of that is being able to freely, safely and privately vote. But the road to these changes really shows the power of petitions. Here to tell us more about that is Zoe Backhouse, who's the head of petitions engagement at Parliament. And it's her job to look at petitions started by members of the public. So petitions, I love them because they're essentially one of our oldest forms, if not our oldest form of civic participation. Obviously, we haven't had universal voting for very long at all. 
the last thousand years, only a small section of society have had themselves represented directly in Parliament. That blows my mind. Petitions have been around for such a long time. And even when you couldn't vote, you could still petition. I think the really important thing to know as a young person who's passionate about politics, who's passionate about change, is that a petition is one tool in your toolkit for campaigning. It doesn't always lead to direct change in the short term. But what it will do is it will get your issue on the record. It will get lots of people to understand your issue who might not have done before. It also is a really helpful way because it's so active. You share it and then people sign it and then they feel part of it to galvanise people in caring about something that they might not have cared about before. You've probably signed a petition or two over the years. I know I have and I know sometimes it feels like your signature just floats away into the ether, never to be seen again. But these signatures matter. Any petition started on the e-petition site that gets at least 10,000 signatures will receive an official response from the government. And any petition that receives at least 100,000 signatures will be considered for a debate in Parliament. For people like Zoe, seeing what topics are trending in petitions is also a great way of knowing what the public is passionate about. And it's not always about the obvious headline-making stuff either. (laughs) One thing that I find quite interesting with petitions that take off where I wouldn't expect it is when people clearly share it within kind of niche interest groups. A recent one is one that went over 100,000 signatures, is one that's asking for the government not to introduce changes to the law that would mean that people can't change their cars. So like, this is for people who modify their cars for like personal reasons. It's like a hobby. And that petition, yeah, it did really, really well and went over 100,000 signatures, which shows the kind of the impact that petitions have when they're, they're started by a specific group. If there's a particular issue that you feel like should get more attention, one of the easiest ways to get the ball rolling is to start a petition of your own. However, if you want that petition to be read by Zoe and her team at the Petitions Committee, and perhaps even debated in Parliament, there are a couple things to keep in mind. First off, you have to use the official Parliament petition site. Only petitions submitted there will be read by the Petitions Committee and are eligible to receive government answers. Here's Zoe breaking down the process for you. Well, it's really, really easy to start a parliamentary petition. All you do is Google Petition Parliament and then you'll land on the e-petitions page. And if you just scroll down to the bottom of it, you find a big green button and that button says Start a Petition. From there, you just follow the instructions, give it a title, a description, send it to five people to be started, and then it lands in Zoe's inbox. We all have a role of checking every single petition that gets sponsored and drafted on the Parliament website. So that's hundreds of petitions every week will get looked at by an individual on every single occasion. So there are real people looking at those petitions and the more you share it, raise awareness and get people involved, the more likely it is that your petition will be eligible for debate in Parliament. For many young voters today, the wild history of gaining the secret vote, along with the eventual expansion of voting rights for women, it might just sound like old history, but the issues that you care about and the votes that reflect them are very much present in the mind of first-time voters, like 21-year-old student Georgia Lyons. I went with my mum to the polling station, which is like a five-minute walk from my house, which is really great. It's in like a little church, 
no it was a good experience like it wasn't bad like there was no queue or anything there was nothing that was like putting me off of it but I did notice how much older than me everybody else was and I think especially as it was a local election not many people knew that it was happening so that definitely stuck out to me Statistically, younger people are less likely to vote than older generations. But maybe if we all knew more about how difficult it used to be, then it would be different. Yeah, the history of voting and what voting kind of means in society is definitely something that more young people should know. And it should be sort of like foundational knowledge. And don't forget that voting is just the start of the democratic process. Unlike voters in the 19th century who were scared about losing their homes if they didn't vote the right way. These days, elections are about holding our representatives to account. And that has been really useful for Georgia. A big piece of advice, I'd say, is ask questions. Like MPs and local members of government and parliament are there to communicate with you. I had an issue in my first year about rent with the company that my university used for their rent and I reached out to my MPs and she helped me and like personally she helped settle a lot of rent disputes and they are there to help you that's kind of part of their job so don't be scared to ask questions reach out and engage. So voting might not be a high octane experience, but if you do vote, you're taking part in a democratic process that 150 years ago could have cost you your job, your home, or even your life. But thankfully nowadays, where you put that X is between you and the walls of the voting booth. Before I go, remember that first secret ballot in Pontefract? While huge holders, the sitting MP at the time was re-elected by 658 votes to 578. The difference was only 80 votes. I really do wonder if it would have been a different result if the vote had been public. So there you have it. Although the days of wild boozy campaigning and high-risk voting may be behind us, we shouldn't forget how we got here in the first place and what tools we have at our disposal to continue making sure that our voices are heard. Listen to the rest of this series to find out how one woman's fight to see her children change women's marriage rights forever, how animals got protection from cruelty and why we now have access to the countryside. I'm Kaylee Golden. Thanks for listening to How We Got Here. Thanks also to Dave Evans, Philip Salmon, Zoe Backhouse and Georgia Lyons for helping me to tell this story. For more information about anything we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes or go to learning.parliament.uk forward slash podcasts. You can follow UK Parliament the House of Lords or the House of Commons across your socials to keep up to date with what's going on. This was a Story Things production for UK Parliament. The producer was Freya Hellier and the writer was Louisa Roland-Hagen.